Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io. What's up, Gromies? Welcome to Office Hours, your source for free cannabis cultivation education. My name is Keisha. I will be your moderator. This is episode 85, and we are coming to you live and direct from MJ BizCon 2023, booth number 51005. What's up, you guys? This is crazy. Okay. Anyway, here's how we do it. If you have any questions, feel free to drop them in the chat at any time. We're on IG Live. We're on YouTube. Just drop them in the chat. We'll keep an eye out, and as soon as we can, we'll get to those. We're, uh, and then, uh, yeah, other than that, let's get right to it. Seth and Jason, what's up, guys? How you doing? Good. All right. It's nice being at the show here. Sorry, some feedback. It looks like when we get too close to Tyler's mic. Oh, yay. Um, the joys of live There you go. Broadcast. Just cut it. <laughs> Speaking of Tyler, why don't you, we all introduce our special guest today? Hi, everyone. I'm Tyler here. Just kicking it with my, oh, ouch, with my crew, the front row egg, front row egg team here. Uh, we're just talking about fertilizer, crop steering, trying to answer technical questions and occasionally uh, rambling co- incoherently, sometimes coherently. So I'm going for the, uh, the latter on this one. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Perfect venue for that. Um, well, let's get right to it. So we're at MJ BizCon 2023. Seth and Jason, you guys want to give an overview of what we debuted this week for anybody who missed it? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So we did three product releases. Uh, I'm very excited about uh, the new Taros One, which is a uh, new substrate sensor. I've uh, been working on this technology for the last few years. And uh, the Taros 12 obviously has been on the market for about six years now. And so it's great to see what we've learned in um, substrate sensing actually kind of come to a head on new technology. So the Taros 12 is capacitance based measurements. And this is a complex dielectric measurement, which is going to be really beneficial when we get into low water contents as far as the EC accuracies go. Um, we've also launched the Climate One and the Aurora Go. So the Climate One itself is aspirated climate station with CO2 measurements. Very excited to better attribute room environments and, and get as accurate as measurements as possible for the environmental grow parameters. Let's talk about Arroyo Go. Can uh, one of our co-workers grab a box for us, please? I got you. Awesome. So. Yeah, Seth, do you want to talk about it? Yeah, we now have Arroyo Go, which includes one dual nose sensor, or one dual sensor nose, which means you get two Taros 1s to plug into your system, a climate station, and it's expandable up to 10 Taros 1 sensors and five climate stations. Starting price is $24.99. That's basically for our home growers and our hobbyists and our small scale cultivators out there. Excited to bring this offering to you. Right. Beautiful package. Yes, yes, yes. Maybe that's in frame. Yeah. Let's put Ah. it up there. Cool. And then, yeah. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. Jason's got a model of it. We got a Vanna, the Vanna White. Yeah. Yeah. So it's basically a Roya in a box. For anybody who is uh, interested in bringing uh, data-driven cultivation to their R&D room, to their one room in their big facility, want to try it out, or in their basement, wherever you're doing the fun stuff, right? Can you, like, what would you do if you had this back in the day, Tyler? I'd be winning at everything these days, just <laughs> winning so hard. If you had this, like, you know, 10 years ago and could take all the data you got from it then and be using it now, you'd be like, you'd just be so far ahead of everybody else. Yeah. 
super excited. I'd be retired by now. You'd be honestly. retired. You'd be, you'd be in, in, on Maui. That's, that's the dream. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, then what? that's what we've had going on. Oh, my mic is being changed. How about you, Tyler? What you been up to this week? What's going on with you and Front Row Ag Tech? Yeah, we've just been out here talking to customers, prospective clients. And, you know, I just get tagged in whenever there's a technical question to answer, which is kind of the fun part. So people come by and I make up big words and uh, hopefully solve their problems, actually, most of the time. But that's the fun part is having people come by, getting to see all my friends here that I talk to in Zoom meetings and on the phone, you guys, but mostly just answering technical questions and trying to you know, help fill in the dots for people at their facilities. So Tyler, for people who don't know, like give us a little bit of your background. How long have you been in this particular, this world that we're in? Well, I guess the short version is I fell into cannabis by accident after starting out in biology and human nutrition. Turns out there's a lot of overlap, but science is science. So uh, when I started in cannabis, I, you know, started out in a garage, but was running controlled experiments and trying to take that data and learn things from it. You start off and you just make so many mistakes, every possible mistake. But the key is like, if you do it right, you don't really make the same mistakes twice, too often at least. And then over time, the systems evolve and we get access to better technology. And suddenly things start to start going really, really well. So that's the idea now is just to like replicate what we're doing, combining it with fertilizer. And, you know, we, we get to do a lot of really cool stuff that was never possible before because we can crop steer not just with environment substrate, but with elemental ratios in our fertilizer, changing nitrogen, manipulating the timing of it. So it's kind of what a lot of my intellectual focus in cannabis is in now is just like looking at that stuff, seeing what do we know and what do we not know? Because there's so many things that we're still trying to figure out, but we do have some reliable insights that we can port into our production facilities now. Mm-hmm. So I help out with Front Row Ag and I do technical advising there for our customers and also run cultivation facilities myself where I get to put everything into practice and make sure it actually works the way it wants, the way we want it to. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah, we've had some great conversations about about this amazing industry. Uh, Take it? Okay. Um, All right. Well, this is a perfect... episode for nerding out we're gonna what we're gonna do is just our typical q a feel free to chime in and for anybody who's with us live we want to hear from you feel free to ask some questions and let us know raise your hand or actually tag Haley and let us know uh i'm using this instead okay yes we're getting it all right i'm gonna ask this question we got a write-in from tim cam 23 they wrote hey guys just want to say in the last 16 years of growing i feel like i've learned twice as much in the last year than i've been following you guys using your equipment so thank you we appreciate you tim quick question wondering if there's a situation where in my commercial grow because of the layout of the building and I have to veg in the flower room and then just flip when the plants are ready. As far as setting up my slabs and putting my four by four cubes on top, is there a way I can shave off time as in when there's enough roots coming in through the bottom, but maybe I'm not ready to flip. So putting those cubes out on the slab, even though normally we wait until we are flipping the flower, does that save time and or get me ahead in any way? Um. I think I would use basically two benchmarks for describing when you should be doing that in this case. Uh, first off, as far as root development in there, absolutely, you can get on the slabs before you're flipping the flower. So if we 
are seeing some substantial root growth across the bottom. I usually try to think about between you know 60 and 75 percent of the bottom of the four by four covered in roots. Um, get that thing up on the slabs. Keep vegging in there at your 18 to 6 light cycle, and then I would use the benchmark of plant height probably for dictating when to flip to flower. Yeah. Can I add something here? So one thing, this is kind of peripherally related to this question, but a common mistake I see in practice is you see somebody who's trying to go uh, speed up their veg cycle or at least minimize it because they're doing some amount of veg in their flower rooms. And so one of the main mistakes that I see is people just don't charge their substrate high enough to get vigorous and fast veg growth. So one of the things that we say is whether you're using cocoa, a slab, whatever, you have to charge that thing with enough nutrition that a small surface area of roots touching it can actually have enough food for the plant to continue growing quickly. So what I'm having people do most of the time is charge their slabs at like three to 3.5 EC. And then when you put your cube on top of that slab and the roots get in and it charges. And when you do that, you can get away often, depending on your plant spacing, say it's like two square feet for a for a plant, your total veg time from planting your clone to being able to flip into flower might be 12 days or 14 days. But if you don't charge that slab at a high enough EC, then your total veg time to get that right plant height could be 22 days or 28 days. So there's just huge differences in efficiency that can be had here based off of the starting conditions. Yeah, down that same that same route, like, once you, if you don't have your slab charged, you got to really think about like, all right, what's my opportunity to continue to put EC into this? So we know that like, hey, while this is rooting in, I'm not going to be giving it irrigations a very significant volume. We're going to be giving it small micro irrigations to keep it fresh, but we don't have an opportunity to dump, you know, a large amount of salt into the substrate for, you know, anywhere from five to 10 days usually. So that's really important to keep in mind because if your plants are low at the end of that, you know, five to 10 days, you can't really start stacking yet. And a lot of times, you know, I've found the 3.0 is the bare minimum, you know, and a lot of times Agreed. people will go even go up and charge at a 4.0 just because like, Hey, I know this plant's a really heavy feeder. And if I don't, I'm not going to be able to stack it up. And that's also sometimes where you start to, you know, get a little bit more customized with your nutrition program and say, Hey, these heavy feeders, we're going to run at a 4.0 pretty much all the way through because we know it's going to take up over a thousand ppm of salt a day and you know back in the days of growing in actual soil that was like surprising to think that that could happen but now we know it definitely has happened and it does happen every single time awesome you guys thank you for that all right we've already got our first live question here in the chat let me go ahead and read this and actually it is for front row ads so look at that we got the right person on the job all right so if i oh, if I let them know my well water analysis, can they help me know how to feed it if I need to do something custom? Yeah, absolutely. And this is a good question because we see so many issues that have to do with starting water quality. Your source water is going to have it, a huge effect on what you feed, what treatment options you need. And it's going to be a little bit different for everyone, especially if you're coming from a well. So there's generally going to be high alkalinity in well water. So that's important to know if it's too high. And if the EC is too high, then you're almost definitely going to want to do some amount of treatment, maybe mixing it with some degree of RO. But we can absolutely take your source water, test it, see what the elemental ratios are, and then adjust our formula to incorporate that. So if say, for example, your well water is really high in calcium or magnesium, 
And we're like, okay, well, we can adjust our ratios to fit that. So yeah, definitely get in touch with us. We can send in water samples. We have good labs for this. And it's something that we do pretty frequently. There are situations where you're going to find things in your well water that just aren't incompatible with growing really healthy plants. And if, it, if that's the case, we'll tell you. And then you just got to treat it. Yeah. Recently encountered a customer at Arsenic. And uh, yeah, and it was a low enough PPM to be, you know, perfectly safe for city water. But long term, it builds up in the root zone and builds up in the plant tissue. And they're actually ended up testing for it. And they're going like scratching their heads like, where, like, where could this come from, you know? And unfortunately, yeah, the solution is spending more money on water treatment. But I think that's probably the biggest problem I see out there. And people have issues, not just with fertilizers, but system operations. A lot of times if they don't know what their baseline for their water is, or if you have a well and you have fluctuation throughout the year, where you have higher loads of carbonates and things like that, and the pH fluctuates, you need to be aware of that because sometimes you'll get dropout or binding of different uh, elements in there. And at that point, it's no longer plant available. So you might be looking at a what you perceive as a deficiency, which is a deficiency, but just adding more fertilizers isn't necessarily going to help because your ratio is not correct now. Yeah, that's really well said. I think it's important to pay attention to those seasonal variations in water, which we'll always see. Even with municipal water supplies, it'll change throughout the year as the water table changes. So people should know that. And the other thing that you reminded me of is uh, in well water especially, you might get some weird or exotic species of microbes in there that can interact with the minerals in your fertilizer in a negative way. So if you're seeing mystery problems in your irrigation system, your batch tanks, reservoirs, and so on, like do a microbial test on your water as well to make sure that you're not getting something weird in there. Yeah, and don't assume your filters are always clean or sanitary, you know, but we have the RO system, like open it up, <laughs> you know, because. Uh, yeah, well, you know, just don't assume anything is actually fully safe or operating all the way. Always track your point of, in, always track your uh, source of contamination. Follow it backwards. Find out where it actually is because the water. If you don't have good water, you're not going to grow good plants. That's kind of the baseline here we're getting to. Yeah. All right. Well, straight facts right there. If you're just joining us, Office Hours Live, we also have we have our special guest Tyler Simmons here representing Front Row Ag. So we're just talking about plant soil science. I mean all kinds of science. So if anybody, does anybody have a live question? Yeah, what's your question? Of course. I'll kind of summarize the question a little bit. 
Yeah. So I'll summarize that. So there was some event at the facility that prevented irrigation on a day and was not fixed in time. So major dryback in the rock wool and he lost some field capacity, which is like very common to happen. I wish I could completely reassure you that everything will be totally fine. But I mean, what probably happened, you lose some of that field capacity and you may lose access to some of that rock wool as well. If there's roots in it that have dried out and died, then you've lost some of the potential for that harvest. That's not to say you can't still have an excellent harvest, but you have to imagine that, especially in Rockwell, every event like that that happens, if you start off with everything's perfect and you're, you have a potential of 100%, every event like that drops your end potential by some percentage, whether it's 3% or 15% is pretty hard to tell. But your best bet at this point is like, yeah, you have your rock wool and you've got to finish out the run. So my take on it would be you would absolutely want to keep uh, you would try to maintain the targets that you can. Uh, in general, I would recommend never letting your rock wool go below like 20 or 25 percent water content. So I would say uh, don't focus too much on the exact water content values, but really focus on maintaining your substrate EC within the ranges that you need to have it. That's going to be the key factor. The rock wool is still going to yield water down to really low water content levels, but maintain that substrate EC in your right ranges and you should be able to finish out. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've got some experience with uh, running Rockwell on very, very low values. I would do exactly what Tyler said and just keep with the strategy that you have. Um, you know, even towards the end, if you're seeing low points in that Rockwell at 5%, 10% water content, I, I mean, that Rockwell is going to be thrown away here in a week, right? So as long as you are able to store enough water in there that they don't get to zero and hit permanent wilting point, then you should be in an okay position to keep with a ripening strategy. Um, that being said, one thing of caution with Rockwell is when we look at the matrix potential curves, there is available water usually at 5%. What happens though, if we get to 0%, um, that plant doesn't necessarily feel much of an irrigation stressor when we get very low in water content in Rockwell. So you go from a plant that's showing no signs of, of drought or irrigation stressor to a plant that's got hit permanent wilting point and beyond um, in a very, very short period of time. Like a matter of less than an hour, possibly. Yeah, temporary wilting point doesn't really exist in Rockwell. <laughs> That's just, just, just the way it goes. I mean, the most you could probably do is try to watch your content throughout the day and space out your irrigation so you are getting, you know, doing the most with the minimum, minimum amount of applications. But yeah, maintaining your EC, making sure that doesn't go crazy is probably the best you can do and just ride it out. And I mean, you're not in six by sixes, so... It could be worse. Oh, are you? Okay. Okay, well, get, get slabs, man. <laughs> Agreed. Go to slabs. Save yourself yeah. some future problems. Be, yeah, way less stress. Just more of a reservoir. Yeah, that's... I'm sorry, dude. That's brutal. <laughs> Every morning is just like a... You walk in like, don't get heartbreak. Don't get heartbreak. Not that they look bad, but, you know, like one missed event, you see plants start to drop and it's crazy. I recommend uh, beginning a meditation practice if you don't have one yet. <laughs> he is my spiritual guru, so yes, do that. Thank you so much for your question. If you have any follow-ups, we'll, we'll be here.
Awesome. Okay, we're going to move on to the next live question that we got in here on YouTube. Our good friend Iron Armor checked in and they wrote, is the Arroyo platform the same for the Arroyo Go as far as the, the tracking and data logging software? Gentlemen, Arroyo Go versus Arroyo Core. So Arroyo Go comes with 60 days of data logging. It's a little bit more of a stripped down version that's geared towards you know consumers who don't necessarily need all of the commercial application. So, uh, you know, with that in mind, we tailored it to kind of exclude certain things like not everyone needs, you know, exactly. If you don't have employees, you don't necessarily need to send people other tasks. Not to say you don't want to take notes and still utilize those features, but it is a little more pared down. That being said, it's still an amazing tool and I would encourage anyone to try it. And once you've bought, we, you can upgrade over time. You know, you're not, you're not locked into any one thing. All this equipment is the same, no matter if you buy a Royago or an upgraded package, it's, it's all the same devices. So this is just providing people an awesome entry point. Yeah, great entry point, exactly. Um, yes, excellent, we're gonna keep on going. And then, oh, we got more live people here. So if anybody has any cultivation or crop steering questions that these experts can answer, I am not one of them, I'm the moderator, but we're here for you, we wanna hear from you. And then actually, I don't wanna forget, we've got some swag for you. Thank you for asking the question. All right, we're gonna move on to the next question that we got a right in here sunset gardens wrote in hey love the content very helpful thank you we appreciate you i'm curious about tips for coming back from too high of ppfd or light stress i've been getting some light yellowing during stretch not sure if it's a deficiency under feeding or too much light thoughts yeah i'll start out on this um in general if you're seeing some stress from too high of PPFD, I think there's a very good chance that you're just underfeeding. During this period of time, especially stretch, the plant's metabolizing nutrients at like a prolific rate. It's growing as fast as it's going to at any point. It's putting on the most biomass. So you just have to give it enough fertility for it to be able to do that. Really common problem that we see all the time is people underfeed during stretch and then increase their feed later on. And it just doesn't match up with the plant's demands. So I would say your first kind of step here would be to increase your feed EC. I'd be curious what your substrate EC is at. Um, you know, based on most of my data, if you ever see a substrate EC, especially during stretch that's below 3.0, you've got immediate plant deficiency or incoming. So that's a problem. It should be significantly higher than 3.0. Um, and sometimes you just have to feed more than you think. So first step, increase the feed EC, see if that light stress actually disappears because what you probably just have is a, not necessarily too much light, but too much light compared to the amount of nutrition that you're giving. Yeah, I'll second that. I, a lot of times I see light stress or photo bleaching if it comes down to those feed levels. And one of the first things that I do is, well, fortunately, the people I work with are Roya clients. So I get to look at their EC curves and take a look and see, oh, we are losing EC on a daily basis. When you're irrigating, you're recharging that substrate. And that's not necessarily what we want to be seeing. We want to make sure that there's more than enough nutrients in the substrate for that plant. Yeah, I think it's important to remember you've got, uh, you know, depending on your light level, what type of lighting you're using, there are a few little differences on how you want to uh, fertilize your plants. Um, along with that, you know, LEDs, for instance. Pretty much everyone I know, when they first switched LEDs, they're like, are you sure we got to run these numbers higher? And it's like, yeah, you're, you're putting out more PPFD, you're getting more even coverage, you're pushing these plants harder. Every piece has to be there. If you have, you know, you take away one of your main foundations, if your table leg, one of them's a little short, it's going to get wobbly. 
it's not going to work so well. So don't be surprised sometimes with what plants will take, I guess, is the one way I'll put it. I know uh, Noah over here, who's standing here for once, is, uh, well, what'd you run that one now? 14 to 22, I think, finishing. It was pretty crazy high, and it was kind of an experiment to see, like, can we kill this with just EC? And no. Well, as long as we were maintaining pH, the plant took it just fine. It took in what it needed, let everything else run by. Uh, I wouldn't say there's an advantage to it, but just <laughs> I like to tell that story to comfort people and say, hey, you're probably, especially if you're doing this on a commercially economic level, you're probably not going to over-fertilize them. You know, more than anything, you're going to run into pH issues or under-fertilizing. Unless you mix with pounds instead of grams. <sighs> Then it just won't dissolve. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> One other thing I'll mention on there is that if you're looking at your runoff pH and you start to see a significant rise over time, that's a pretty good sign that nitrate might be getting depleted in your substrate and is another indicator that you just need to feed more. There's exceptions to that rule, but it is a good kind of general rule is that as nitrate is absorbed and depleted, your pH is going to rise. So keep an eye out for that. It's a good kind of convergent value to figure out what's going on. Yeah, it's kind of different than our old school tech of like, oh, no, flush it out. Like, no, give it more, give it more. <laughs> But really, that's that ends up being the solution more often than not. I don't know how many people I've talked to where it's they're convinced they've got a really serious deficiency or problem in their facility. And yeah, like just bump up that feedC, start trying to stack it up, you know, and that that solves so many problems. Awesome, you guys. Thank you so much for your insights. All right, we're gonna keep it moving. Instagram, we got a question on Instagram live here. Someone wrote, what is the main cause of stem streaking? First of all, what is stem streaking? Can someone define that for me? I'm a consumer. <laughs> I'm going to guess they're talking about just the purpling coloring on the stems. Red striping. Uh, yeah. Red striping on the stems and, and on some of the, the lower, larger leaves. Uh, so it's a lot of it's genetic. I mean, the, the main of it is genetic based. Uh, some plants we won't see it at all. Some plants we'll see it a little bit. Uh, probably one of the things, though, I do keep in mind is if I'm seeing it in plants that I'm not used to seeing it in, it might be related to feed levels. Uh, a lot of times the purple stems or red stems is, is related to a lower EC level. Um, that being said, certain strains will still have that coloring even at appropriate EC levels. So it's coming down to getting used to those strains and only identifying it if it's an abnormal amount. Yeah, at the risk of sounding like a broken record here, uh, my first guess is underfeeding as well, although Jason's entirely right. Sometimes just the genetics. Um, but yeah, if, if you're underfeeding, you start to see purple stems or red streaks. That's a really common sign. So it, that'd be kind of the first thing that I'd look at there. Um, I will make a note that, you know, it's you can do tissue testing to figure out what's going on inside the plant as well. Um, and I'll say it's people really love to like look at a plant and say, oh, this is so and so deficiency based on a pattern in a leaf or something like that. And that's mostly witchcraft and in, in my opinion it's there's like there can be so many different causes of a set of like you know different morphology or color and leaves that it's almost impossible to say just from looking what the cause is so you can do some tissue testing to find out but you're likely to find out that it's underfeeding again 
Yep, usually under feeding, I have seen times where, uh, you know, we don't have a good heat source in the bedroom. So winter comes in and the plant's close to the outside wall, we'll get a little purpling that we're not used to seeing. But yeah, the big thing there is crop registration. Document what's going on. Start writing down when you see it. Uh, if the plant does grow out of it, really define, is it citrate? Is it actually a deficiency? And then... How bad do we think it's actually affecting things? I think that's kind of where the line gets drawn because some plants are going to be odd. You know, even if you go to tissue testing, when we look at, you know, other crops outside of cannabis where there's this wealth of information, all of that information is still variety specific and it's basically being done in public universities. They're paying people to uh, time series test thousands and thousands and thousands of plants over the entire site growth cycle. So that one little snippet, that little bit of insight might tell you like, hey, our our nitrogen's really low in this plant, like, okay, feed more. But when you start seeing some variations in micros and things like that, you really need to document it over time because there's more than likely, and there are companies out there that, you know, like Arvum that are getting a little more detailed and stuff. But I mean, we're, we're just starting to get into some of this and there's so many differences with cannabis genetics that I certainly can't look at one and just say, other than, you know, the big ones, NPK, like those values are really low. Other than that, it's like, well, I don't know. Do we want to talk about whether they need boron or nickel? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I'll, and I'll add to that. Like assuming, say somebody is feeding it an adequate EC. Another thing that could potentially be happening is because of the way that plants will preferentially take up certain ions over others at certain times. If you're not getting at least a little bit of consistent runoff, those ratios can start to skew over time. Even if your EC, the conductivity is reading at the right level, you don't know what the makeup of that is necessarily. And that's why we always try to get at least some degree of runoff every single day so that you're replenishing those ratios and whatever minerals or ions the plants are taking up preferentially are getting replenished and any ones that are getting left over are getting leached out it's also why we like to take the ph on that runoff that you're getting oh absolutely ph and ec like like tyler said you know you don't necessarily know what ec is in that cup but you can also start to use it to determine because here's the other thing if i run a watering program i'm not going to stand there for two hours and watch it and see when you know document when every single plant starts running off but if I start to see a lot of inconsistency across my plants, I might be looking at some that are running off a lot more than others easily. I can see that, you know, and I can start to see like, oh, hey, maybe I'm maybe I'm putting too big a shot on too quickly. So I'm getting some channeling like why my root zone EC says it's between an eight and a 14 today. Yet my runoff EC is like suspiciously low. You know, how am I only getting a 4.0 out of there? And it's like, well, a lot of that's just your incoming water running right through it. Thank you for your question. And then we have another one here on Instagram. Does quality of salt affect crop searing? So that's um, kind of an interesting question here. So I'll say yes, obviously the quality of salt that's in front row is the best for crop steering. <laughs> we had the most crop steering in grams per gallon out of any company. <laughs> uh, totally kidding. But yeah, the, the quality, and I'm going to say the quality is generally related to the purity and solubility, making sure it's free of contaminants, fillers, and things like that. That's always going to make a difference, not just with crop steering, but with every part of your cultivation, your irrigation system, the solubility, like everything is going to depend upon you having quality salts and not accumulating things that you don't want to be in the substrate, the plant, the irrigation system. Um, you know, these are all soluble minerals, basically. When we say a salt, we're just talking about a soluble mineral. There's different sources for those minerals. There's different grades. And in general, you want to pick a supplier that's using the highest grade soluble minerals that you can so that 
not only is it uh, pure, but it's consistently pure over time. If somebody is constantly switching between manufacturers, sourcing, which has been a big deal over the last couple of years, then you can have inconsistencies. One crop is amazing and the next crop is totally different. Well, that could be a manufacturing or sourcing issue. So yeah, having consistency and quality of those soluble minerals is absolutely critical. Yeah, I mean, we spend a lot of time talking about how, uh, you know, this crop steering is really a holistic approach. And with salt, you know, a big part of it's plant nutrition. Another part is just operational efficiency. If you're plugging your system up all the time, uh, that's not really good. If, you know, you're talking about solubility, if you're leaving 20% in the tank, that's just wasted money. And uh, I think it's, it is a challenge, you know, constantly getting a good supply of clean fertilizer, but it's, it's essential. You know, if your if your system goes down for a day, <laughs> sometimes that's going to hurt you pretty bad, right? And sometimes that really could just be like really poor batch of salts. It's it's happened many times far before everyone anyone was ever even growing weed at this scale. Just we could talk to tomato growers or anyone operating a big system, right? Like you want to do everything you can to not have to go fix it every single day, and I think that's where that comes in. This wasn't exactly asked in this question, but I think it's relevant. And one of the things that's Im important to note in regards to crop steering and fertilizer, your salts, is the elemental distribution. So like what minerals are you feeding at what times? And I've been I did some writing recently and some literature reviews on some great research coming out of Israel on this in cannabis that's basically looking at like, so what did different elemental ratios do at different times to cannabis? And the punchline of this, which is sort of obvious, but very interesting, is that when you provide really high levels of nitrogen, the plant's going to prioritize metabolic pathways and creating metabolites that have nitrogen in them. And if you decrease the amount of nitrogen, then the plant's going to prioritize your secondary metabolic pathways, which are going to be your generative structures, your trichomes, terpenes, THC, and so on. So when it comes to crop steering, we use elemental ratios at front row as a tool in that toolbox. And if you get this right strategically, if you get the timing right and you can drop, have nitrogen high when the plant needs it and then drop nitrogen, not all the way, but to the right level at the right times, then you can shift all of the plant resources into the type of structures, the metabolic byproducts that you actually want to provide the best quality. Yeah, a simple way I like to explain it to people is, you know, anytime you're putting nitrate in, that's affecting the plant the same way oxen would, which is the plant hormone. And even if you don't understand exactly everything oxen does, it causes cell elongation versus division. And basically, we at a certain point, we don't want that plant to stretch anymore. And if we feed it too much nitrate, you're, the plant can't do anything about it. <laughs> like you said, it's, it's literally forced, and that's also preferentially uptaken over other minerals. So that timing is... Uh, I've seen a lot of people struggle to finish certain strains and sometimes it can be frustrating because you're like, why does only every fourth strain that I bring through here not finish for me? What is it? And a lot of times it really just is that most, most strains do fine, you know, with that nitrate load they're they don't care. hundred <laughs> percent agree. Know? There's some really interesting variability between genetics and this strategy we've taken at front row is to kind of match our fertilizer recipes for certain genetics with the different crop steering phases. So, you know, at the simplest level, you know, you're going to have a certain set of demands during your stretch period, a certain set of demands during the bulking period, and then a different set of demands during the ripening period. And that's when it's particularly important to adjust those elemental ratios, drop the nitrogen levels and shift the plant to that secondary metabolism.
Yeah, kind of on top of talking about quality nutrients is you know, other quality additives. Um, you know, one of the things that I didn't realize is for probably the first couple of years that I was in cultivation was when I'm adding a pH modifier, I'm adding some amount of nutritional change as well. Like if I'm using quite a bit of nitric acid in order to drop the pH of my feed, I'm actually increasing the amount of available nitrogen in that feed as well. Um, so make sure you're using an appropriate uh, and high quality pH adjuster. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, yeah, and you know, your pH adjusters are generally, if you're using pH down, you're going to be using maybe sulfuric or phosphoric acid. So, you know, sulfur, phosphorus, plants are relatively insensitive to sulfur. So you can actually use a lot of sulfuric acid as pH down. It's very caustic, so be careful, but it's not going to throw off your elemental ratios, which is a huge plus. Um, and then for pH up, I really prefer like using a potassium carbonate or something like that. We have a product called cleanup that does that because you get some of the immediate pH adjusting effects, but you also get an increase in buffering capacity from the carbonates, which stabilize your pH over the long term, make it more resistant to changes, keeping it at the right level. And you don't get that if you're using like a potassium hydroxide, which is probably your most common pH up. That's really important, especially if you have long irrigation lines. We're looking at residual nutrients in the line from yesterday's feeds. Uh, pH can swing substantially unless it's buffered. You guys all get to see it in, uh, over the next couple of weeks here. But I just wrote two articles for the Front Row blog on pH and hydroponics titled <laughs> Part 1 and 2, pH and hydroponics, more than you wanted to know. So <laughs> it's, awesome. it's probably uh, unnecessarily technical, but if you really want to get into the science of what's going on and why to make certain decisions, then definitely check it out. I think everyone should. It's really important to understand how, you know, how critical pH is when we're talking about plant nutrition. You know, again, I've seen so many people focus on a symptom, but ignore, you know, everything holistically that's going into this, like it must be deficient. And even if you don't care that much about the chemistry, the more you can understand about it, the more, the more you'll like really fixate on how important it is, you know, like EC stacking, for instance, my pH starts to go out of line. I don't care about that anymore. I mean, I don't want to flush everything out, but like if my pH is drifting down to 4.8 or something, like, you know, I'm not going to try to take a stab at what's deficient. It's everything. You yeah. Know? You're going to have problems right away if yeah. that happens. That reminds me just as a side note here, like there's been a, many times where somebody's had like mystery problems and I'm looking at plants and I'm like, I think you should just go calibrate your pH meter and they go and calibrate <laughs> it and they've been feeding it like a, a 5.2 pH or a 4.8 pH Oops. or like a 7.0 pH. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's the problem. So sometimes it's like the, just like the really obvious stuff that we, we don't even think to check. So just always check that first and oh, every week. Yeah. Those crusty inline sensors that, you know, no one's cleaned in two years. They're so delicate. <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> they, they just fail all the time. And actually it's kind of fun. We migrated to, to conversations about pH here. Um, was it in their substrate as well that could have been causing that? Absolutely. I've run into a lot of clients that have you know, recently changed suppliers for their cocoa, and maybe they didn't test the pH before they were rocking and rolling, and they're having huge troubles in veg that round. And it's like, man, we didn't really change anything other than the cocoa. And I'm like, well, get some of that cocoa, do some pour through pH tests and, and do some validation. So that's something I always recommend before you invest in the, the labor and the energy, the time, the products to grow another crop in a new substrate. Do, do your diligence on that new substrate. And don't stop. 
you know, even if you're in rock, we'll get used to testing that. Like if there's ever any change, even, you know, not saying that there should be a lot of change in the manufacturing process, but if there is, you're the one that has to deal with it. So the more you're aware, the more you log things, the more you're actually going to be able to deal with it over time. Yeah. One more thing to add on the pH side of things is you'll see some people sometimes using organic acids for pH management, like citric acid or uh, acetic acid. And these um, these are, are weak acids, meaning that they do exert some effect. But we really don't recommend those because they're also used by uh, microbial metabolism in the substrate and sometimes by the plants directly. So that action by microbes can radically change the pH in the substrate, even if you applied the perfectly pH fertilizer. Um, it's just really hard to keep things stable. So try to steer people away of using those organic acids for pH management. I'm glad you brought up that root zone. So that just always reminds me like everything we do is focusing on like just this tiny like sub millimeter surrounding of the plant, the actual environment that it lives in. That it does extend to the roots as well. You know, I think that's uh, it's easy to miss and not think about. I mean, comprehensive. All right, just a reminder, if you're just joining us, this is Office Hours Live, live and direct from MJ BizCon. If anybody in person has any questions, we want to, to ask them. We've got some experts ready to answer them. But in the meantime, we will take the questions submitted online. Our next question came from Instagram. I find that when I'm in week four to six of flower, I may encounter some burnt leaf tips and margins with their runoff ECs around four to seven. With running these high EC values, how can you tell if your plant is deficient or toxic? Thanks a million. I, I'll start in on this one. Um, those runoff EC values are not outrageous. I'd really like to know what the volume of the runoff is as well, because that gives some important context to what that actually means. But usually if you're seeing something like that, um, I would look historically and see if there was some event that happened over the last, uh, you know, anywhere from a week to two or three weeks prior to this, because sometimes there's just a delayed effect. And if you're getting, you know, very reasonable, you know, four to seven runoff EC at this point, that's not going to tell you what your runoff EC might have been a week ago or two weeks ago when you had a problem. So that's it's really hard to say just from a spot measurement. It's why we like to take this data every day so that when something pops up, we can look back and see, like, was there anything that was out of line here? Yeah. Yeah. Don't give yourself excuses if you're checking your runoff pH once a week. Start doing it every day. Start checking your EC and stay on top of it. Like you said, you know, by the time we see a symptom, the damage is already done and there's no fixing it. There's just don't don't make the same mistake next time, unfortunately. And that's I think as a girl, that's one thing that bothers mistake. me. Right. Yeah. You see a sick plan. You're just like, oh, I, I just said, you know, it'll trim up. <laughs> this is what I tell people all the time. It's just like it's OK to make mistakes, but try not to make the same mistakes twice. I want to kind of answer the question there is how can you tell whether you're toxic or deficient, right? And I'm just going to bring up what Seth was talking about later is cannabis plants are very hungry plants. They're quite tolerant to higher ECs. So the chances of being toxic are usually pretty low, which is kind of one of the reasons when we historically 
think about how people talked about EC and they would say, hey, you know, I'm getting tip burn because I've run it too high at EC. That probably wasn't an appropriate diagnosis in most all situations. But really what we're looking at is either imbalances or complete deficiencies or other parameters that are going on. Um, if you look through the, the history on this and you're only seeing some of that, you know, that browning on the older leaves, I probably wouldn't get too concerned on it, especially if you're seeing appropriate plant development in the newer growth areas. Um, yeah, whatever that's worth. Well said. All right. Thank you so much for that question. Moving on to the next one. By the way, if anybody's here live, now's the time to ask. We got less than 20 minutes left in the show. All right. Our, our good friend, Big Cypher, wrote in. We miss you, Big Cypher. Thanks for checking in today. He wrote, hello, Arroyo team. Matt excited for the Arroyo Go platform. Is there a subscription fee for the 60-day data logging? If so, can we get the pricing? Thanks, as always. I can get us started here. There is no subscription fee. So basically, the $24.99 promotional price, which we have in place right now, Big Cypher, you get your data logging. It is included for your 60 days for three years. You're all covered. You don't have to do anything. You're all set. Um, anything else you guys want to add to that? No, that's thank, it. Thank you. You had that one. I got that. And then they. Um, he also asked if we can, well, let's see what the other question was. Um, will we have access to more, more terrorist ones? Yes. You can add up to eight more, right? So for a total of 10 Terrace Ones will connect to the Arroyo Go. So what you wanna do now is go to arroyago.io. We'll tell you everything you need to know about this amazing product. Anything else you guys wanna say about that? Just me, wrap it up, keep it moving. Let's go. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. All right, all right, we got another question here. We're moving on to curing. Hayes to the Kush wants to know, when curing, how long and how often to burp them proper? Sure. I mean, usually we, we see burping every other day, every three days, that type of stuff. It's just going to depend on how much volume you have in what size container, um, how much airspace is in there, and what stage it is in the curing as well. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. There's uh, not any one converged way, right way to do this. So experiment around a little bit if you want to be, um, you know, if you want to be really uh, careful about it, then do a burping every day. But you probably don't need to do that. So, um, and in general, just like maintain, maintain your environmental control as consistently as possible. And like issues like burping become less and less important. Absolutely. That's what I was going to say, you know, make sure that it, especially when it comes to like duration, how long are you burping them for? Get a sensor so you know how humid it is in that room and how long you really need to leave those open to get a complete burp. And about it get yourself one of these bad boys the aqua lab right here yeah this this thing is amazing more products <laughs> but you put your weed in there and this is going to tell you the water activity value of that bud at that time which we can use to slow we can slowly bring that water activity down water activity is telling us you know how much access microbes would have to the moisture inside of this cannabis rather than just moisture content and uh, basically, we can really ride that line if you're using the right equipment. You know, number one, you can get it away from the snap test because that, you know, is really subjective. Um, it's also hard to teach people once you've decided what your snap test is. <laughs> um, and, you know, challenges I've had, especially with seasonal fluctuations, like it gets hot outside, cold outside, more or less humid. It's like, hey, we're doing really good in a particular season. And then it got really dry outside. Like, okay no one changed our schedule. So now we overdried the, overdried the bud in the first like two or three days. That's going to affect my cure later on. 
you know, it's number one, I probably won't get as uh, much of a nose on my product as I hoped for. Number two, I also want to be making sure that, all right, I did that. I know it's a problem. How do I recover this? Right. And you can do some moisture compensation. A lot of times it means it's just going to take longer to get the moisture to homogenize inside that bud. And you want to be constantly testing it to make sure it's not going to mold at that point. It becomes a storage issue. And then that'll go right back to make sure you've, you know, we, we spend all this time fixating on the growing aspect, right? That cure process is super important. And if you haven't invested into a quality facility or uh, sensors, alarms, everything to make sure you can pull off that period with as little problems as possible, then it's worth it. You know, that's to me, that's like a it's kind of a crying shame <laughs> to take your crop all the way to the finish, hang up these beautiful plants. And then uh, three weeks later, you walk in into the packaging room. You're like, where's the smell? Mm-hmm. What happened? You know, and I think we all know that takes our price premium down quite a bit in today's market. All right, we're gonna keep it going here. We got this question over on Instagram, and this is for you, Tyler, for Front Row Ag. Do you guys let people know what EC should be per A and B after they're mixed? I have seen with other brands, it's different per bag when I mix some ratios of CGPG. I don't know. Yeah, that's a great question. And um, yes, the answer is yes. In fact, if you look at our feed charts, you can see for any of our given recipes and total ECs, you'll look at part A and say it's, you know, added at five grams per gallon or something like that. It'll and you're shooting for a three EC. It'll tell you exactly what the EC of part A should be. Like if you just added part A to your reservoir and then measured the EC, it'll tell you on the feed chart exactly what that should be. And it's the same for every single one of our components. Not only that, but we provide uh, validation information for stock solution. So when you mix up your stock solution, you want to validate it. You can take 50 mils per gallon or 50 mils of your stock solution, dump it into a gallon of RO water, check the EC there to make sure that the stock solution was mixed correctly. We also give the contributed EC per gram per gallon. So for like part A, B, bloom, if you want to know how much and you're like, okay, for part A, for every gram of this, we add per gallon of water, it's going to raise the EC by, you know, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head. It's like 0.322 or something like that. We provide all that information and a custom uh, spreadsheet, if you want it, that will show exactly like for your desired EC values, what the EC of every single part should be to make up that total. Great. Thanks, Tyler. All right. Moving on to the next question from Instagram. We see people stacking Rockwell cubes on top of Cocoa Core. How does this affect crop steering? Well, <laughs> is my response. Uh, yeah. Um, I'll just jump into this one. You're, you're you're going with the same kind of strategy basically as going on the slab instead of three plants you have one but we're taking advantage of that aggressive root growth to also push aggressive upward growth in the plants um, i love it because i hate moving pots <laughs> i can carry a lot more plants on a four by four in one cart or in one tray however i'm moving them and really reduce the amount of steps that i'm asking people to move around in the facility uh, and vegging in a four by four is easier i can get faster results a two-week veg is great on a four by four, I'm not having a situation where I, I can't really aggressively irrigate for seven to 10 days. I can hit those pretty hard after three to five days and actually start crop steering effectively earlier in my growth cycle. So, yeah, one of the things though, there's when, you know, when we are mixing medias, it can be a little bit of a challenge just because of the uh, different hydraulic properties of those medias. Um, 
that being said, there's a lot of very successful grows that are using Rockwell 4x4s because they're probably a little bit easier to run veg in than a 4x4 um, cocoa cube. That being said, you know, if you are running into some of those rooting in issues because of the differences there, you might check out just the, the mesh-sided 4x4 cocoa. I want to add, too, never bury your Rockwell in cocoa. I think that's rule number one. That's where I see people like, man, this never works. How do they, like, don't bury it. Resist your urge to plant the plant and just rest it on there. Pretend your Rockwell is a slab or your cocoa is a slab, basically. 100%. Then follow up with what Jason said here is like, you know, if you, I don't know if this is exactly what this person was asking, but you know, when you do have the different types of substrates and you're like, well, what I have targets for Rockwell, I have targets for cocoa. What do I do when I'm mixing them? Well, you just have to also think like, where is the plant sensing the majority of the substrate, right? You know, when it's vegging, it's, yeah, it's sensing it in the rock wall. And maybe for the first couple of days after that plant's been stacked on top of a cocoa pot, um, it's still in the rock wall. But as soon as those roots penetrate down into the cocoa, and especially once they've proliferated through it and filled up all of that area, the plant is going to be barely sensing the rock wall at all. So you're just going to run it like you would for cocoa. And um, if you if you look on my Instagram, I do this a lot, Tyler underscore incognita, and you can see pictures of this. I do a lot of rooms where I'll veg in a four by four by two and a half, stack it on top of a one gallon cocoa pot, and it works super well. Like you, you don't really have to worry about anything complicated. Treat it like rock wool when it's in veg. You treat it like a cocoa as soon as those roots penetrate the cocoa. Seriously, shout out to Tyler's Instagram. Tell him again. <laughs> tell him again what it is. Tyler underscore incognita. You'll be glad you followed that. All right, moving on. We got a question in from YouTube. Randy tells us his setup. Rockwell uni slab with a four by four block on top. When calculating total media volume, would you use just the bottom block or four by four plus slab combined? Uh, well, I'll start off here. I, I just use the combined total and I don't think it's, I've done it both ways, but these days for simplicity, I use the combined total. I don't know if that's industry standard and I'm curious what you guys say about that these days. Uh, you know, with the smaller top block, I've seen people do it both ways a bunch and typically, you know, just like you're talking about, once you're rooted into that lower media, that's where we're really con concerned, you know, and I think that's, I always like to remind myself, if I'm looking at a media, that there are certain properties I'm looking for. One of those is actually having that water table down at the bottom, because that's where plants actually uptake water, is the last you know inch or two of those roots. So I've seen it both ways. It just depends. Do you have a 4x4 or a 6x6 stacked on there? And how big is the media you're going into? If I have a 4x4 on top of a, a half-gallon pot, then, then it's a little more critical to include that in my calculation, I would say. Yeah, well said. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I also like to think about is just at what point in time, because when, when our plants are getting older, you know, second half of the flower cycle, most of that top substrate is just going to be root crown anyways, and we're not getting a lot of water, water absorption. And a lot of times we actually see some hydrophobic properties just because, you know, that gravitational pull on the water is not necessarily... It's it's starting to dry out the top few inches of the cube. Yeah, yeah, that's I totally agree. Yeah, I like to challenge people who are worried about it. At the end of your run, just grab that cube and break it. You're gonna have a fat stem going through there, not a bunch bunch of little roots. 
Thank you for that question. All right, we got another one here on YouTube. And then FYI, for anybody who's here live, you got six minutes to ask a question live on the show. We're gonna be here after that, but we would love to hear from you. All right, Nate dropped a question here. I have heard and never tried that if you water to waste, pHing the water does not matter. A dude who runs massive tomato greenhouses told me that. Anyone ever try it? Depends on your incoming water quality. Yeah. <laughs> if the pH is, is right, it doesn't matter if you water to waste or research. Um, but I don't know that I've ever been somewhere where the pH was just perfect coming out of the ground. Yeah, you but, know, I think some of that attitude comes from uh, one of the first early, like 10 plus years ago, growing in my closet, <laughs> playing with small, you know, little tiny quart-sized cocoa pots and stuff like that. One of the early texts I looked at was, uh, you know, dunking your whole pot, completely saturating and running it off. And the idea there was you have complete control as if we're a deep water culture. Um, drained to waste, though, the theory is we're running off and correcting that pH every day. So, you know, man, if you're lucky, sure, don't do that. But pay attention because like we talked about, water quality can change, fertilizer can change, what your pH incoming and outgoing is. Um, I wish that were the case, but no, check it all the time. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I mean, this is a really high value crop and it's you don't want to just ignore some parameter. Um, you want to track everything you can and make sure they stay consistent, look for changes in it. And it's yeah, it's theoretically possible that you're in a situation where you just naturally have perfect pH and it never changes. But I wouldn't want to count on it with how much we have on the line most of the time. Awesome. Thank you guys for that. All right. We are, we have just a few minutes left. I want to get to as many questions as I can. We just got this one on Instagram. What's your opinion on taking samples directly from medium RW slabs to measure pH EC versus measuring runoff? Um, hopefully you shouldn't see that big a difference between the two of them. Um, both of them are very good ways to get the associated pH of what is in the substrate itself. Uh, I mean, I mean, the reality is unless you're on a really long timeline between runoffs, you know, say you're in a five gallon pot or seven gallon pot, you're only getting runoff every three, four days. You, then you might be doing a, a actual soil test where you're doing a, a, you know, mixed in some water and stick a, a pH sensor in there. But otherwise they both should be pretty similar. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree there. I think that's the way to go. Um, just operationally, uh, I think it's the simple, the most simple way to do it is just to check your runoff. Um, There's certain situations where you maybe, especially in soil, I guess you might want to do, uh, you can, there's different, you can look up uh, some of the lab procedures for this, but you can do a ratio of soil, water, mix it up, strain it, check the pH and EC there and make decisions from that. But in general for rock wool and things like that, um, I just don't think it's really necessary. Um, maybe it's interesting. Um, maybe you'll learn something from that. But in a commercial setting, uh, I just don't think it's a, a data point that you need to be tracking if you're able to capture runoff. Personally, I like to, I, I want to get that runoff EC and see how that interacted going through my root zone. Like I said, if that EC is really low, closer to my feed EC, that's telling me a few things. Um, if it's really loaded up, that's telling me something else, but that's going to be potentially slightly different than what I would see using a syringe and pulling a sample out. And to your point, Tyler, there, there is a lot of cool science you can do on this, but we don't have a whole lot of media to sample that's... before it's gone. So... <laughs> Doing it that way is a little bit destructive and probably not not at all practical in the end. And, you know, I think it's important to remember that 
Well, it's probably been over a decade since anyone actually bought soil. Um, none of us are growing in soil. You know, we all have we have a lot of soilless mixes out there, but we're not growing in things that have a high cation exchange capacity. It's not holding the nutrients in the same way that you know natural soil. Not bleeding beneath our feet here, but not in the way that natural soil actually holds on to nutrients. So we're not really dealing with any of those more complex interactions that we would be worried about out in you know big field agriculture. We're not we're not planting into a pot full of clay, you know, or less, or trying to deal with a suboptimal soil solution. We're we're trying to bring it the perfectly optimal situation. Well, you guys, we're at the end, about like less than a minute left in the show. So I think one way to wrap it up tyler since we have you as a special guest today what's going on front row ag any new products you want to tell the world about sure so our newest product is uh called phoszyme that's an enzyme product that's supplying phosphatase and mannanase our thinking there is basically that um, microbes produce beneficial enzymes but it's a hard to control process so we're kind of taking the middleman out and just supplying those enzymes directly to the root zone and they're going to do two basic things one is maintain the solubility of phosphorus so it has easy uptake for the plants and then the mannanase enzyme is actually going to uh, what it does is it breaks down sugars near the edges of the roots and increases the water activity there, actually drawing water and nutrients towards the root zone. And in our, we've done a lot of, I ran a pilot program for this. I use it in my facilities and we have a lot of trial data showing that it slightly speeds up harvest time, increases yield and increases potency. And um, the cost of it is, comes out to less than one cent per gallon delivered. So I kind of encourage people just, you can use it with any fertilizer, just add it to your mix, Try it, see what happens, collect some data. We're going to release the, some of our pilot data from some of our partners who have trialed it um, so people can see some of the yield increases and things like that. Awesome. All right, amazing. I mean, you guys, this was our first like live, live show. So super excited. Thank you all for showing up. Thanks, y'all, for chiming in and dropping some questions in the chat. I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. Tyler, thank you so much for joining us, our special guest today. And of course, Jason and Seth, as always, Thank you for your amazing insight. And to our producer, Chris, man, we have a, we're going to put this on the road. We're going to probably go on tour in the future. Stay tuned. All right. So thanks to everybody who joined us for Arroyo's Office Hours Live. We do this every Thursday. And the best way to get answers from the experts is to join us live. And to learn more about Arroyo, book a demo at arroyo.io. One of our experts would be happy to walk you through the, the platform and show you all the ways it can improve your cultivation production process. While you're there, you want to sign up for our newsletter to stay up to speed on all things Arroyo. If you have a topic you want us to cover on a future Office Hours, post questions anytime in the Arroyo app. Drop questions in the chat or on our YouTube. Send us an email to sales at arroyo.io. DM us. We are on all the socials, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Social Club. We want to hear from you. And we will send everyone in attendance a link to today's video and post it in the Arroyo YouTube channel. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share while you're there. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Bye. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroyo the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroyo.io.